Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are joining us. I want to say a quick hello to you guys who are here in person. Glad you guys are worshiping with us today. And also we're excited to have our online community joining us as well. So if you guys here in person would, put your hands together. Welcome in our online family this morning. So good to have all you guys here with us. And it is November the 15th. But it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I'm not sure if you've noticed this or not, but I feel like people have started decorating for Christmas earlier than ever this year. In fact, on Halloween day, before I took my kids out to go trick-or-treating, I got on social media and I saw this, this meme and it says, when the clock strikes midnight, Halloween will be over, then bam, Christmas everywhere. You know, that's almost exactly how it happened. It was like the next day after Halloween, I started seeing lights up, people putting their trees up. It was just crazy. And it was like November 1st or 2nd, and Allison, my wife, came to me and she goes, you know, I think maybe I want to go ahead and start decorating for Christmas. I was like, no, we always wait till closer to Thanksgiving. Not yet. It's way too early. And she said, Chad, it is 2020. All rules are out the window. We need some joy. We're going to decorate for Christmas. And I was like, well, at least think about it for a day or two, thinking she might forget. The next day, I came home from the office, and when I got home, my kids met me at the door. They're like, Daddy, come to our rooms. Come to our rooms. And I went to their bedrooms, and this is what I saw. She put their trees up first. She used my kids against me, you know, because she, she knew that I wouldn't want to spoil their excitement. And so I saw their little trees. That's what she put up first. And I, and I started to say to her, but I thought we were going to talk about this. I'm going to think about it. And before Allison could even speak up and defend herself, Addie, my little three-year-old, goes, Daddy, it's 2020. It's okay. Because she's heard my wife say enough, hey, it's 2020 and we need a little bit of joy. And I get that. I understand that. And, you know, Christmas is a joyous occasion. There's a lot about Christmas that I really like and enjoy. You know, I love the time we have as a church family to celebrate the birth of Jesus during our Christmas series, on Christmas Sunday, on Christmas Eve. It's always an exciting time. I enjoy my time with you guys during Christmas. I also enjoy my time with my family. I love seeing my kids get excited, and they love to watch Christmas movies and hear the Christmas songs, and all that stuff is just good and a whole lot of fun. But there are some things about the Christmas holiday that I don't enjoy. And one of those things, probably the primary thing that I don't like, shopping. I hate to shop, especially during the holiday season. I hate to shop, and I have not had many good Christmas shopping experiences. And several years ago, I think I shared this with you before, Allison and I, before Addie was born, Alex was little, like maybe like two years old, we decided we were going to knock out all of our shopping in one day for Christmas, get it all done. We were going to start early that morning, go all day long on a Saturday, and just knock it all out so we wouldn't have to worry about it. So that's what we did. So we went from store to store to store, and finally we got done. The end of the day, it was late, and Alex, I mean, he was little. He was worn out. He had been in and out of the car and out of his car seat. He'd been in strollers and shopping carts and all sorts of stuff throughout the day, and he had been cooped up, and I could tell he was getting restless. So I told Allison, I was like, Allison, you go do your shopping at this last store. It was a Kohl's department store. You go do what you need to do. I don't need anything else. I'm just going to let Alex run around a little bit and let him have some fun because he's been all cooped up. And so that's what he did. I let him free in Kohl's, and I pulled out my phone, and this is what he did. He just ran free through the store and had an absolute blast. He had the time of his life. He almost hit that lady right there. You know, he just ran around like a free man. 
can hear him scream. This is almost hard for me to watch because he's so much bigger now. But still, he just had an absolute blast running free. And I show you these clips for a reason, even though I may have shown them to you before. Because at the, at the end of me letting him run around, there was this older lady, a Coles employee, that he almost ran right into. And when he almost ran into her, I, I looked at her face, and she had one of those faces like... You know, people just have a permanent frown all the time. You know, that's what this older lady who worked for Coles looked like. I mean, she looked like she just swallowed a porcupine. She looked like she was really mad that I was letting him run around. So I immediately started to apologize. Like, ma'am, ma'am, I'm so sorry. He's just been cooped up all day. He was getting restless. I wanted to give him some time just to run around. I'm so sorry. And she looked at me, and her frown actually turned to a smile. And she goes, oh, honey, it's okay. Let him have fun. It's not like he's at church or anything. Now, she she had no idea I was a preacher. She had no idea that I was a preacher, even a Christian for that matter, that I even went to church. But that's what she said. I, and her statement hit me, and I've never forgot it. There is this idea floating out there that church is the opposite of what's fun. That church is the opposite of what's enjoyable. That church is more of an obligation than something we look forward to. That church is something that's antiquated and boring, old outdated, not a lot of fun. And I wonder where that idea originated, because it didn't come from Jesus. In fact, when I look at the life of Jesus and the start of the early church, I think the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. See, I don't know what you think of when you think of the church. I don't know what comes to mind, what picture comes to mind when you hear the word church, but let me let you know what I think about when I hear the word church. See, I see the church as a party, an eternal party which God is throwing, God started and he's throwing it, where the joy of heaven meets the sadness of earth. Let me tell you why I think that. When Jesus was first born, do you remember what the angel said to the shepherds who were watching their fields by night? Remember the announcement that that angel made to the shepherds? Listen to what this angel said. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all people everywhere. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. See, the whole reason why Jesus came was to bring joy into the sadness of earth, to bring joy into the sadness of our lives which sin had caused. He came to restore us to God. He came to heal the sickness that sin had caused. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but our world at times can be a pretty sad place to live because of the curse of sin. I mean, if you were to put a stethoscope on the heart of any nation on the face of the planet, you know what you would hear? An irregular heartbeat. I mean, just watch the news. Listen to what your kids and grandkids are experiencing in school right now. Talk to your neighbors. Get online. The heart of our world is sick. And Jesus came to heal the world of the sickness that was caused by sin. He came to set us free from our enslavement to sin. He came to give us a fresh start with God, restoration with God, a brand new life where we can live the life that God intended us to live, God created us to live. Jesus came so that the joy of heaven could invade the sadness of earth. And we who have a relationship with him, we can have that joy within us even on our worst day, even when circumstances, the circumstances around us aren't great. And as the church, we're supposed to be those who take the joy that Jesus has multiplied in us, and we're supposed to multiply it in others. We're supposed to take the joy that he's given us, 
and give it to others. Listen to what Jesus says to his followers. He says in John 10 verse 11, I have told you these things, my teachings, so that you will be filled with my joy, the joy of heaven, my joy. And then look at what he says next. Yes, your joy will overflow. See, every time we walk into Walmart, every time we go to school, every time we show up to work, when we're online making comments on social media, when we are driving down the road, the joy of heaven is to be overflowing from us to others. People should see something in, something different in us because we have the joy of Jesus within us. And I wonder if that's the reputation that the church has today. I mean, honestly, think about it. Is that what the church is known for today? Or would the Apostle Paul say to us what he said to the Galatian Christians in Galatians 4.15, what has happened to all your joy? As if at one point you were full of joy, but something happened. And I'm going to let you know something. Those of you guys who know me well, you know this to be true. I love the church. I believe the church is the world's last hope because we have the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. The message that we live by, the message that we preach literally has the power to change and transform people's lives. I believe in the ministry of the church and I believe the church is God's final plan to save the world. I believe in the church. I love the church. But if I'm being transparent and honest with you, sometimes church people can be the most miserable people to be around, can be the most cynical, dare I say hateful, negative people to be around sometimes. And why is that? Well, I think it's because sometimes we lose sight of who God really is and why he sent Jesus to the earth. And I think that's why Jesus tells this famous parable that we've been looking at in this series. We're looking at what's been called the most famous story ever told. And some people would say it's the most famous parable Jesus ever told. We often refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus tells this parable because... He is being criticized by people who claim to know God. He's being criticized by religious people for hanging out with people who have a reputation. People who are, well, they've made some bad choices, and now they're living with the consequences of those choices. Look at what Luke 15 says. This is the context for why Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners... We're all gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. Pause right there. Notice something. The tax collectors, the sinners, these notorious sinners were coming to Jesus. They wanted to be around him. And when you look at the life of Jesus, when you study his life all throughout the Gospels, people were always flocking to him, especially those who were known for having a reputation, especially those who made a lot of poor life decisions and choices. And I have to ask you, is that what the church is known for today? Do people want to be around us because of the message that we preach? Because of the lives that we live? But even though all these people were flocking to Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious guys, they muttered, they complained, they grumbled. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
See, one charge that was consistently thrown at Jesus, which was true, was consistently said of Jesus, which was very much true, is that he liked to hang out with people who had bad reputations. He liked to hang out with notorious sinners. He liked to hang out with the wrong type of people, people who were considered broken, people who had made a lot of mistakes, people who had really messed up their lives. He liked to hang out with those people. And so the religious elite criticized him for doing that. In fact, on one occasion in Luke chapter 7, listen to what they say of him. They say, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and they meant that as an insult. I really like how the Living Bible puts it. It says, he has the lowest sort of friends. You see, Garth Brooks isn't the only guy with friends in low places, okay? Jesus was the first. And they were criticizing him for hanging out with these friends of his that didn't have the best reputation, that had ruined their lives. And this charge was thrown at Jesus over and over again, and it was absolutely true. And the reason why these religious people didn't like Jesus hanging out with those kind of people, those types of people, is because they had the wrong idea of God. See, they saw God as this cosmic scorekeeper who was weighing our good and bad deeds. And so the whole point of life was to get to the end of your life and have more good deeds than bad deeds. And so Jesus now is this man sent from God, and he's hanging out with people that have a whole lot more bad deeds in their column than good. That doesn't make any sense. And that's why on one occasion they say to Jesus' disciples, the religious people say to Jesus' disciples, look, the Pharisees and the teacher of of religious law complain bitterly to Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with such scum? They just didn't get it. They didn't understand why Jesus spent so much time with these people. So Jesus is going to dinner parties with these people who have sinful reputations And they're laughing, and they're eating with him, and they're enjoying his company, and Jesus is giving them hope. And you know what the religious elite are doing? They're standing on the outside of the party with their arms crossed, saying, how dare he spend time with those people? Because you see, having a meal with somebody in this day was a sign of friendship and acceptance. How dare he be in the same room with those people? See, what the religious people were thinking is Jesus should throw them out. He needs to kick them out of the party and tell them they need to go work harder to please God because that's how the religious people lived. And Jesus is saying the reason why you're thinking like this, the reason why you're standing on the outside of the party that I'm a part of is because you have the wrong idea of God. And here's the thing. If you don't see God right, you'll always see people wrong. When you don't see God right, you'll see people wrong. And so Jesus responds to his critics in Luke chapter 15 by actually telling three parables, a series of parables. The parable of the prodigal son, which we've been looking at, is actually the third in the series of three parables. But he tells two short parables before he gets to the prodigal son. And the first parable that Jesus tells is a parable about a shepherd who loses one of his sheep. He has a hundred sheep. One of the sheep wanders away. And so this shepherd, Jesus says, leaves his 99 who are safe to go find this one sheep that has wandered away. And at first glance, when we read this we think you know why would a shepherd leave 99 healthy and safe sheep to go find just this one I mean that doesn't make any sense but 
Let me give you guys a scenario. I have a friend, a buddy who has four kids. And let's say that my buddy and his wife took their four children to Walmart one afternoon. And they're in Walmart. And they're shopping. And then they go to check out. And they're checking out all their stuff. They pay for their groceries and whatever else they get. And then as they're getting ready to walk out the store, his wife says, Honey, we only have three of our four kids. We've lost one somewhere. Well, what if my buddy turned to his wife and said, well, three, three out of four ain't bad. I mean, that's fine, you know. It's pretty good odds, you know. We didn't lose two of them, half of them. Three out of four, that's not bad. We're good. Let's go on. We've got the majority. No, you guys who are parents know this. You guys who are parents know this. You would do whatever you possibly could to find that one that's lost because that one is your child. They're valuable to you. That's why this shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one because the sheep was so valuable to him. And then Jesus says, Jesus goes on to say that when this shepherd arrives home after finding his lost sheep, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, celebrate with me because I found my lost sheep. In other words, let's have a party. I'm going to invite all my friends and family, relatives. We're going to come together and we're going to have a party because I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus says, likewise, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In other words, that moment when one sinner repents causes heaven to break out in a party, in a celebration. That word repent there, that Jesus uses just means to return, to come back, to come back where you belong. That's why we're calling this series Coming Home. Because when one sinner decides to come back home, decides to come back and be with God, that moment is more profound than the 99 who don't need to come back. That one moment causes heaven to break in a celebration. But that's interesting language that Jesus uses, isn't it? The 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let me just ask... Who hears that phrase, that description right there and says, yep, that's me. I'm one of the 99 who don't need to repent. I'm good. The Pharisees, the teachers of religious law. Now, Jesus didn't say they didn't need to repent. They assumed that because they thought they were so righteous and good. They had earned their way to God, and that's a really scary place to be because if you hear that statement and say, yep, I'm somebody that doesn't need to repent, that's a really, really high view of yourself and a really, really low view of God. And that's where they were. And so Jesus then tells a second parable. And in the second parable that he tells, there's a woman who has some coins and she loses one of these coins. And so she turns her house upside down trying to find this one lost coin. And eventually she finds it. And then when she finds her long lost coin, look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. And then Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What happens when this woman finds her lost coin? She throws a party over a coin. Yep, because that coin was valuable to her. And it's almost as if Jesus here is trying to teach us something. He's trying to teach us we serve a God who likes to throw parties. And he especially likes to throw parties when that which is valuable to him is found. And the only reason why you wouldn't be joining in the party that God is throwing is if you don't value what God values. 
Let me illustrate it like this. I came across a news story just the other day. It happened in 2009. It happened in the country of Israel. There was a woman whose daughter came to her over to her house and noticed that her mom's bed, her, her aging mother's bed, was really like lumpy. The mattress was worn out. And she said, you know, mom needs a new mattress. And so they didn't tell uh, the mom what they were going to do, but her daughter went out with her husband, and they bought a brand-new mattress for her aging mother, brought this, brought this mattress back into her mom's house without her mom even realizing it or knowing it. And then the mom came home to find this new mattress, and her daughter thought that her mother was going to be all excited and thrilled, and immediately her mom started to panic. You know why? Because her mom kept her life savings in her mattress. She kept money in that mattress, and the daughter didn't knew it and throw it out. There was supposedly, according to this news article, over a million dollars in this mattress. So they went on a search for the mattress. Here's a picture from the news story that I found. It's kind of blurry because this was 2009. That was like, you know, an eternity ago. But anyway, uh, here's a picture of people searching through trash after trash after trash trying to find this mattress. Now, if you ask somebody, what are those people looking for? A mattress, an old mattress, an old worn-out mattress. Really? That's worthless? Not if you understand the value of it. And you see, the Pharisees and teachers of law are looking at Jesus saying, why are you hanging out with that scum? Jesus says, because they're worth everything to our Heavenly Father. When you have the wrong picture of God, you will always see people wrong. And so... Jesus says the right response, the right response to finding something that's been lost, especially when it's valuable to you, is joy. So religious guys, instead of standing on the outside of the party and complaining and grumbling against what I'm doing, join in the party because the right response to finding something that's lost is always celebration and joy. And Jesus is hanging out with people who have lost their way. He's hanging out with people who are far from God. He's hanging out with people who've messed up their lives. They've lied, they've cheated, they've deceived, they've betrayed. They have failed their families, they have messed up their friendships. They've ruined their reputations, and they've wasted their potential. They are lost. And now they are sitting beside the only one in the entire universe and all creation who has the power to bring joy back into their lives, who has the ability to restore them to God, who has the ability to give them the life that they were created to live. They are sitting beside Jesus, God in flesh, who could invade the sadness that sin had caused in their lives with the joy of heaven, and they're excited about it. But you know what the religious guys are doing? not just complaining they're refusing to have any part of it whatsoever because they don't value what God values even though they claim to know God so you know what Jesus does now he gets to the heart of the matter and he tells one more parable the longest of the three, the parable of the prodigal son, because here's the thing. It's one thing to have a sheep who wanders away, and it's one thing to lose a coin, but it's another thing to have a lost child. So Jesus tells, sorry, Jesus tells a story about a dad who has two sons. We've been through this. The younger son comes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead, basically, because you're just in my way. So I wish you'd just go ahead and give me my inheritance now. 
And the dad gives in to the son's request because the dad knows the son's heart is already in a distant country. And so the dad gives the son a third of his estate because the younger son would have got a third of the estate, a third of the inheritance. And the son quickly follows his heart and he goes off to the distant country and he wastes his dad's money in wild living. But eventually he hits rock bottom and he ends up losing everything. All of his newfound friends abandon him and he finds himself feeding pigs. He's working for a pig farmer and it hits him. The pigs have it better off than me. So Jesus says this younger son comes to his senses and he decides I'm gonna go back to my father. I'm gonna go back to my dad who's always loved me. And I get it, I can't be a son anymore. I have given up that, that option. But now I'm gonna go back and just beg that he will accept me back on the estate as one of his servants. And so this son goes back to his dad and when his dad sees this younger son coming at a distance, he sees him a long way off, Jesus says that this dad drops everything that he's doing and he runs to his son and he embraces his son and his son starts to say, Dad, listen, I know I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. Just let me be one of your servants on the estate. And the dad doesn't even hear what the son is saying. He says, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. I'm gonna write this boy back into my will. He's gonna be part of our family again. And then listen to what the dad tells the servants. He says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. We're going to party for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And so this dad throws this huge celebration in honor of his son. You know why? Because the proper response to finding something that's lost is always joy. It's always celebration and this is the point where Jesus has ended the other two parables shepherd finds his lost sheep they have a party parables done woman loses a coin she finds the coin they have a party parables done dad loses a son the son comes back home they throw a party the parable should be done this would have been a great spot to end the story right but Jesus doesn't end the story here he keeps it going and I think this last part is the primary reason why Jesus told the parable in the first place because I think at this point he turns to the religious leaders and he reminds them that there was an older brother on the estate. Look what Jesus says. Meanwhile, I feel like we need some like heavy music right now. Meanwhile, dun, dun, dun. Okay, here we go. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? And the servant says, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So the older brother comes near the house, and before he even gets there, he hears the sound of music, and he hears the sound of dancing. I mean, this is some party. If you could hear people literally dancing, I mean, this is some party. I mean, they're doing the cha-cha slide and the Cupid shuffle and Macarena and all sorts of stuff. I mean, they're, they're breaking out in music that I can even dance to, okay? They're having a fun time. And the son hears what's going on, and he asks one of the servants, what's happening? And we can understand why the dad is throwing such a lavish party because his son, he thought he was dead and now he's back again and he's alive and he wants everybody to know that his son is alive. We get it. And I'm sure that those who are at the party, they were just overflowing with joy because they saw the joy of the father. And everybody seems to be excited. Everybody seems to be happy except the older brother and maybe the fattened calf. I don't think the fattened calf was real excited either, but... Besides the fattened calf, the older brother is the only one who's not excited. And look at what happens. 
It says the older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. Something snaps within the older brother when he hears about this party. I mean, this was the guy who had watched his dad suffer all these years. This was the dad who saw his father's heart break. And so we might think that at first, the older brother is defending the father's honor. That would make sense. But that doesn't seem to be the case. No, the older brother doesn't seem real concerned about his dad's happiness. He doesn't seem real concerned about his younger brother who's now back home. He seems to be just focused on himself. Look at what the scripture says. But he answered his father, the older brother, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not brother of mine, but this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice the focus of the older brother. It's not his dad's happiness. It's not that his long-lost brother has come home. He's all about himself. And I want you to pay careful attention to a couple things that this older brother says. First of all, notice how the older brother describes the relationship he has with his dad. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you. He doesn't see his relationship to his dad as that of a son, but as a slave. Isn't that interesting? He sees his dad more as a taskmaster. And his whole job in life is to just earn his dad's approval. He does what his dad wants him to do, not because he loves his dad, but out of obligation. He sees himself more as a slave to his father than anything else. And he has this mindset, which is a false idea that's floating around in many churches today, and it's this. It's, I've been good, therefore, God, you owe me. God, I come to church, and I do what you ask me to do, and I obey the Ten Commandments the best I can, and I, I do all this stuff for you, so you owe me a good life, God. It's why so many people get frustrated with God when they shouldn't and end up eventually resenting him. The older brother here resents his father because they have this mindset, hey, I've been working to earn your favor, doing everything I can. And I deserve this. You owe me a good life, God. And what we miss if we have this thought is that none of us deserve anything from God because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. All of us have rebelled against God. And we may not have done the same thing that others have done, but we've still messed up. We've still rebelled against God. We've still offended him. We have still broken his law and his covenant. We are the ones who have messed up. And none of us deserve anything from God. Anything we have from him is a gift from him, and we lose sight of that. And sometimes the longer we're in church, the more we lose sight of that. When instead our mindset should be this, God, I love you, therefore I give you my life. Because I love you, I'm willing to give you my entire life. I mean, when I first started dating Allison and I realized how serious this was getting, you know what, I started to spend a whole lot of time with her. I didn't have any free Friday nights anymore. 
I didn't have any free Saturday nights anymore. I was seeing her all the time, and I was spending a whole lot of money on her. I mean, we were going out on dates, movies, and out to eat, and gas money, and all that kind of stuff. We were, I was spending a whole lot of money on her. Then when holidays came around, I mean, Christmas, she expects a gift. Birthday, she expects a gift. You know, Valentine's Day, she wants flowers and candy and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? As I was dating Allison and getting more and more serious about her, you know what I kept thinking? Man, I can't believe i got to do this. I can't believe I've got to spend more time with her. I can't believe I don't have Friday night open anymore. I can't believe I got to dish out all this money on her. Do you think I ever thought that? Of course not. I never even thought twice about spending time with her or spending money on her. You know why? I was so fortunate that a girl like her liked me. I would do anything for her. You know what I'm saying? Because I loved her. And no matter what I did, I knew I didn't deserve her love. And when you truly love somebody, you're willing to give whatever for them. Now, our mindset with God shouldn't be, okay, I come to church because I have to. It's because I get to. It's not a got-to thing. It's a get-to thing. And how do you approach God? Is it a got-to thing or a get-to thing? The older brother, it was a got-to thing. He felt obligated to do it. But I want you to notice something else. Did you also notice what else this, brother, uh, this older brother says? He says, in all these years, I've never disobeyed your orders. And all the parents in the room said, yeah, right. The, perf- the first perfect child ever right here. I know this kid did not obey his dad's, uh, what his dad told him to do all the time. But in his mindset, again, he's good enough. And Jesus says that this older brother refused to go in. Now, I want you to know something. That was a public display sign of rebellion. For the father in this culture to throw a party and invite everybody and for one of his sons not to go to the party, not just not to go, but to stand outside refusing to walk in, that was the same level of rebellion as a son coming and saying, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Because remember, in this day and age, eating with somebody, dining with somebody was a sign of acceptance. What this son is publicly saying, Dad, I don't accept your leadership anymore. I don't accept you as the patriarch of this family anymore. I don't agree with the decisions you're making. And let me let you know, let me let you know what's really going on. Well, see, just because you live in the father's house, it doesn't mean that you have his heart. This son has lived in the father's house all these years, but he doesn't have the father's heart. And Jesus talks about this. Look at what the Gospel of Matthew says. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what's going on here. Because this older brother, if he truly loved his dad, whatever excited and brought joy to his dad would have excited him and brought joy to his life as well. Because we love to see the people we love happy, right? But he's lived with his dad all these years, and he doesn't really love his dad. He loves himself because here's what's really going on. Remember what we said early on in the series? That the oldest brother got two-thirds of the estate, and then all the younger brothers would have got one-third. They would divide it up the other one-third. Well, there's two sons, so the oldest brother gets two-thirds, the youngest gets one-third. Well, the younger brother's already got his one-third and wasted it off in the distant country. Now he's come back. The dad has written him back into the will. There's only two-thirds left. Maybe it's grown a little bit over the time he's gone, but still... This, the rest of it is supposed to be the older brothers. And now by this dad writing him back into the wheel, now the younger brother gets one-third of the older brother's two-thirds. And the older brother's ticked. He's mad. And basically what he tells his dad is, Dad, 
I love your stuff more than I love you. I love what you can do for me more than I love you. I don't care that you're happy. I don't care that you're thrilled. I don't care that you're overflowing with joy. I don't care that you're throwing a party. I don't care about any of that. I love your stuff more than I love you. It's the exact same thing that the younger brother said years ago when he left for the distant country. And I want you to notice what the father does. As his older, as his elder son is outside rebelling against him, look at what happens. So his father went out and pleaded with him. His father left the party to go out and plead with his son to come in. His father reached out to him at his worst moment, and it's the exact same thing the father did with the younger son. Remember earlier in the text, but while the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. Guys, we have a father, a heavenly father, who reaches out to us even in our worst moments. In our worst moments, when we're rebelling against him and we're blowing and we're messing up our lives, he doesn't hate us, he's not against us, he still loves us, and he reaches out to us and says, I can pull you out of this moment, and you can join the party as well. And that's what the father says to the older brother. The father says to the older brother in our text, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In other words, the only one keeping you from joining in the party is you. You want a party. There's a party going on right now, and it's not just for you. It's for the whole family, and you're a part of that family if you want to be. The only one keeping you from the party is you. This party is for you as well. And guys, we live in a world that needs to hear that. Because our father has a lot of sons and daughters out there in the distant country who are far from him. And they need to hear that the father is throwing a party and they're invited to it as well. And that's why this Christmas at First Church is going to be something special. Our theme for Christmas is going to be the thrill of hope. Because we believe that what our world needs right now more than anything is hope. And we want to let everyone know, our neighbors, our friends, our family, we want to let our coworkers, our schoolmates, everybody, we want everybody to know there is hope found in Jesus. And so what we're going to do during the month of, of December, as we celebrate Christmas, we're going to throw a party here every single week. You guys remember the You're Invited series that we did last year? Well, we weren't able to do it this fall because of COVID. We're going to have a You're Invited Christmas version, okay? And every single Sunday, we're going to do something special here that we want you inviting your friends to. Because we want to have a celebration and we want everybody to know God is throwing a party because of Jesus and it is for them. They are invited. And we don't want to leave out our online community either because we know we have a lot of people right now who are worshiping uh, at home because, uh, because they have to at this point. And maybe it's because of your health. Maybe it's because you live out of state. Whatever the reason, we're glad you're part of our church family as well. And we don't want to leave you out. So if you will text Christmas to the number that's on the screen right now, we have a Christmas experience box that we're going to mail you. And we will have something special for you, something tangible for you to experience from this Christmas box every single week in this series because we want you to know the party is for you as well. But whether you invite somebody and you're here on our North Granite campus or if you worship from home and you get a Christmas experience box, we want everyone to know that the church is a celebration, a party where the joy of heaven invades the sadness of earth. And so the question is, will you join the party? Because I don't know about you, but I hate to be lost. 
I don't think anybody really likes to be lost. I remember several years ago when Alice and I first started dating, we were going to go somewhere on a, on a date, and somebody told me about this place that we could go, and uh, it was going to be really cool, and uh, they gave me handwritten directions for how to get there. And so I'm driving on these country roads, and I got lost. I had no idea where I was, but Alice and I, um, we'd only been dating for six months or so, and so I didn't want her to know that I was lost, and so I tried to act like I knew exactly where I was going, but I didn't. And this was... The day before you had, you know, GPSs on your phones. And so nowadays, if you get lost, or at least if I do, this is what I do. I just type in this to my phone, and I hear this. In a quarter mile, use the left lane to merge onto US 169 South. And it tells me exactly where to go, right? Don't you guys do that as well? Well, we didn't have GPSs on our phones, and so I'm panicking. I don't know what to do. I'm lost, and I'm looking at, I do have this old, you know, Nokia phone from back in the day, but it didn't have any cell service. We were in a place with no cell. I don't know what to do. And then it hit me. My dad put one of these in my glove box. Anybody used to keep these in your glove box? For you younger folks, this is a road map, Okay. And what you do is you open it up, and it has, like, streets on it and roads on it. And you can figure out where you are and then where you need to go. And the worst part about using one of these is folding them back up. So, but I pulled out a road map, and I found out exactly where I was, and I knew where I needed to go, and I was so grateful. My dad put that map in my glove box. Guys, our Heavenly Father doesn't want anybody lost. He has provided a way back for you. It's through his son, Jesus. And when you accept Jesus, Lord, you've got the pathway home. And he's got a party waiting for you. God may not use GPS to call you home, but if he did, this is the message that your GPS would say. Come home. Your father's throwing a party for you. I hope you will respond to that invitation and follow his directions. The only one keeping you from the party is you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and for this time we had to open up your word and study, study this part of the parable. And I just pray that we could receive from it the message you want us to hear, that, Father, we would join in the celebration, join in the party that you are throwing. God, we love you. And because we love you, we want to value what you value. We know you value us, and so that's reason for us to celebrate, but you also value everyone around us. Your son is good news for all people. So may we, especially as we enter this Christmas season, share the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, with the entire world. And if there is anyone listening today to this message, either in person or online, who does not know Jesus as Lord, Father, may they come home today because he is the way home. In his name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.